0: Let's continue now in our study of On Christian Confession. What is the believer's confession? And we're daring to pull the curtain back and take a look at this and ask questions such as, is it appropriate, is it proper, given the full nature and scope and the all-sufficient final nature of the Atonement in Christ that we enjoy Is it appropriate, is it proper, for the believer to continue to confess sins? Because our sins are so fully forgiven, past, present, and future, by what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, where does confessing sin fit into that atonement? Where does confession of sin fit into the Christian lifestyle? And to do that, we turn to 1 John. And so let me just do a little brief review here. Today I want to talk with you about what God says about sin. I want to begin that topic because what we did in the first lesson is we discovered that to confess our sins is far more than just a, a moment in time, an event where we go to a confessional or to the altar on Sunday night or stand in a liturgy and confess our sins and receive clerical absolution. We discovered in 1 John 1.9 that the word confess, if we confess our sins, is the Greek word homologeo, meaning to say the same thing. So immediately we discovered that for us to confess our sins has to do with something much broader than just a singular event or even a regular occurrence. For us to say the same thing as God says about sin is a settled disposition. It is something that we as children of God share with our Heavenly Father. It is a way of thinking about sin that affects how we speak about sin, how we think about sin, and therefore, how we treat sin in our confession. So the confession of sin is something we do all the time. It is a settled disposition. And so we considered the fact, and let me back up here a little bit, we considered the fact that as a result of the proclamation of the true Incarnation, In all of its implications, including the finished work of Christ on our behalf, that we have this fellowship with God that is permanent, that is unbreakable, and unconditional. Isn't that glorious? There's never a time, consequently, that the Christian, the true Christian, is not in fellowship with God. Now you may, may be times when you don't feel like you are. There may be times when circumstances would appear that you're not. But the glorious good news I have for you today is that this fellowship is permanent, it's unconditional, and it's unbreakable, and is not subject to how you feel in the moment. And it's not subject to your circumstances. It's grounded in what God has accomplished in his son on your behalf. And then we began to look at these verses 5 through 10 and discovered that these verses represent John's launching out in a series of descriptive contrasts. And let me remind you of what we meant by that. Verses 5 through 10 of 1 John chapter 1 represents a series of descriptive contrasts in which John is describing two very different communities. The Gnostics, who deny the humanity of Christ and therefore deny the body. They deny anything material as having any value, as being evil, in fact, and only that which is spirit is good. So this, these Gnostics, this early Christian heresy, denied the reality of Christ's incarnation because obviously if he had a body, he can't have a body since all material things are evil. So they redefined Jesus and they completely dismissed any doctrine of sin. What was important for them, they taught, and they really believed that this was a, a new insight, a new revelation above and beyond that of the apostolic revelation, a new insight that they have gotten from the Holy Spirit, they taught that, that, that the Christian life was about ascending to, into secret knowledge, into new levels of spirituality, where we escape the material, and we find union with God, by escaping anything material, including our own bodies. So this ludicrous Christian heresy had arisen from within the Christian community. Some had left, and now they were returning as evangelists, and they were beginning to teach this heresy. So John is writing this letter as a pastor protecting the flock against this heresy. And in verses 5 through 10, he immediately begins to describe these two very different communities. One is calling itself, both of which call itself Christian, only one of which is. So you have the Gnostics, who call themselves Christians and who are not. And you have the Apostolic Christians, who are true in their faith. Lovers of the truth who have responded to the apostolic proclamation and have been granted this permanent, unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with the Father and the Son. So, by way of review, just let's just look at those verses real quickly one more time, just to remind us of the glorious thing that John is saying here about confessing sin. He begins in verse 5, And this is the message we have heard from him, and declared to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no moral darkness in God. There's nothing partial about the light of the Incarnation. It is a full revelation. It is a saving revelation. There's nothing more to come. There's no more secret revelation waiting to occur. And there's no moral darkness in God. Only holiness. Only righteousness. Only purity. And so, John wants us to understand right out of the gate that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then, in the next five verses he begins to contrast darkness and light, truth and falsehood. And he does that in verse 6. So remember, these are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. And that affects then how we see 1 John one nine. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. Now, who did he just describe there? That's right, he described the unbelievers. He described the heretics. He described the Gnostics. This is a part of the community that is not even Christian at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, see, it's about what you say. It's about what we speak. It's about what we confess. If we confess that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. And then in verse 7, is another description. But, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So the first group walks in darkness. The second group, the apostolic, the true Christians, walk in the light, as he himself is in the light. And we have this fellowship with God and with one another. And the consequence, the result of that fellowship, and this is part of the breathtaking revelation here that John has given us, the proclamation he's given us, the result of that unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with the Father and the Son is that the blood of Jesus, his Son, God's Son, is cleansing us from all sin. Continually. The word cleanses there in verse 7 is in the present tense. So the believer is someone, is described as someone who is continually being cleansed from sin, from all sin, not just known sin, but all sin. Sin that we're conscious of and sin that we're not conscious of. All sin. So not only is this fellowship that has been granted to us as a result of what God has accomplished in His Son unbreakable, permanent, unconditional. What comes out of that fellowship is God is continually cleansing us from sin, from moral guilt, from moral corruption. By the blood of Jesus, his son. And it's from all sin. Very important word. Not just from some sin. Not those that we can remember to confess. But all sin. So there's the first description. And then verse 8, we have another description, didn't we? If we say we have no sin, remember it's about what we say. Because what we say reflects what we think. And what we think is a reflection of our our predisposition, our true beliefs. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Once again, he's describing the Gnostics within the community. That's a descriptive statement. And he follows that up within verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that verse, verse 9, taken in isolation, has always been used as a prescription for Christians to go to when they've sinned. And while there's nothing wrong with that, per se, that isn't John's intent here. John is using verse 9 as a counter-description to the Gnostics. The Gnostics say that they have no sin, and in such they deceive themselves, and the truth is not in them. Whereas the believing community, the apostolic community, true believers, are those who confess their sins. Now, we learned last time that the word confess is, in the Greek, homologeo, which simply means to say the same thing. Christians are those, true believers, true apostolic Christians, are those who say the same thing that God says about sin. If we say the same thing that God says about our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, again, he gives another contrast. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So confessing sins has to do, in verse 9, with much more than an event a moment in time where in the confessional or at the altar on Sunday night or during the liturgy we confess known sins. This has to do with the child of God's attitude and thinking and speaking about sin itself. We share with our Heavenly Father the same view of sin 24-7. There's never a time when we are not, therefore, confessing our sins. This could also be translated, since we say the same thing as God about our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as we could verse 10. Since we say we have not sinned, We are not saying what God says, and we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we see then immediately, this is far more than just an event in time or a place where we go to confess our sins. This has to do with the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who confesses or says the same thing that God says about sin. And while we can go and confess our sins in the liturgy, we can confess our sins on Sunday night at the altar, the danger is that we can do either one of those things and still not be in a place where we as true believers say the same thing about sin that God says. Confession is, an, is walking in in agreement with God about the nature and reality of sin. It's about walking as children of God. Where our mind is that of the mind of God. Where our will is that of the will of God. Walking as true children of God. Reflecting the mind and will of our Heavenly Father. So... If, in fact, as we just learned, to confess our sins is to say the same thing as God says about sin, we naturally should ask ourselves, what is it that God says about sin? And to do that, we're going to look at some other parts of 1 John, in his letter here, where he describes the nature and what God says about sin, the reality of sin. What does God say about sin and what does God say that we are to do about it? And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. First John, we're going to look at well, there's probably 3 or 4 different places in the letter of First John where he addresses specifically the word sin, harmatea in Greek, meaning to miss the mark, to come short so as to not win the prize. So many times people think of sin as completely missing the bullseye altogether, completely missing the target altogether. But sin is simply varying to the left or varying to the right, missing the mark. Sin is about maybe being close, but still not there. And this is very important in your, of your understanding spiritually, because... There is so much mindset in the Christian communities today that God somehow accepts anything less than perfect obedience. That, in fact, God somehow is tolerant of sin. That God even concedes the point, which he never does. So we are in fellowship with God because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. And so John begins to deal with that. He wants us to not only know that we as Christians are to be those who say the same thing as God says, he now wants to equip us to understand what God says about sin. So let's delve into that in the remaining time that we have together today. And that we'll look at it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Let me read there. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. End quote. So John is immediately beginning to address us as little children. My little children. What are we to make of that? Well, John is teaching us from a very elementary basis here. This isn't some kind of condescending statement from the Apostle. He's saying, my little children, to help us remember that we're getting very basic elementary instruction here about the nature of sin. What does God say about sin so that we can ensure that we are those who say the same thing that God says about sin. My little children, therefore, then, is simply reminding us that this is very elementary. Now, the Gnostics, of course, taught that you had to pursue secret knowledge. There were ascending levels. And so you had to reach this union with God through a series of degrees of ascending spirituality. But John is saying, no, 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 this is basic. This is elementary. This is the beginning point. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that, that's the Greek purpose clause, so that, he's writing so that you may not sin. Period. So the first thing we understand is he's writing us so that we may not partake in the Gnostic community. He is writing so that we don't sin as the Gnostics are doing by departing from the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. Departing from the truth. He's writing so that we may not get caught up in that heresy. But there's something else here that we should take very important note of, very careful note of, and that is that he's saying that we don't have to sin. He's saying, you don't have to sin. You may not sin. I'm writing so that you may not sin. Now, if you've been in Christ for some time, that may not sound as profound as you might think it should. But it is. Remember, when we were in Adam, we were slaves to sin. It's all we did is sin. In fact, we loved the sin. It was our nature to sin it was not possible for us not to sin. But now John is telling us, not only is it not possible, he's writing, so we don't sin. Listen, it is never God's will for us to sin. And in Christ, we've been empowered by the Spirit and set free from sin, the slavery to sin, so that we don't have to sin. So that's the first thing we can understand about what God says about sin, is that it's never his will, and we don't have to. So if we're sinning, it's because we're ignorant of those two facts. We have yet to integrate that new reality into our thinking. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. God forbid, said the King James. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, sin is always enslaving. Slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin. That's the other thing that God says about sin, is that we all began as slaves of sin. We were slaves of sin. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we were slaves of sin. But having heard the gospel and responded in faith, having obeyed from the heart, he says, not just in a a mental assent, not just a nod and a wink, but obeyed from the heart. That pattern of teaching to which you were given over, to which you embraced to which you have given yourself over to that pattern of teaching now has freed you from sin not only from the penalty of sin but from slavery to sin and that isn't then that freedom doesn't just bring us into a, a vacuum a neutral space no 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 freedom from sin in order that we might now be slaves to righteousness. So we're moving from one slavery to a good slavery, from evil slavery to a good slavery, slavery to righteousness. Where it was once our nature only to sin, it is now our new nature to walk in righteousness, to do righteousness to reflect our Heavenly Father, to reflect our Lord Jesus Christ in His righteousness. We're talking here not about just imputed righteousness, but actual righteousness. What we're doing what's right in the sight of God. We're doing what's right in our interpersonal relationships. We're doing righteousness. So now... Believing from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There's another echo here of that. In fact, Paul is probably echoing something from the Gospel. In which, in John chapter 8, you might recall, Jesus said this to a group of Jews who had just professed belief in him. He said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Well, these newly professed believers protested. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, this is just the opposite of what we read in Romans 6. And there are many professing Christians today who would protest that they have to be freed from sin, let alone have to obey from the heart the gospel. They have some other definition of what it means to be a Christian, just as the Gnostics had some other definition of what it means to be a Christian. They wouldn't believe it all for a moment. They wouldn't say the same thing that God says about sin. Rather, they might actually tolerate it. They might even be proud of their tolerance of sin. They might even bless it. And the last lesson I mentioned to you, the tragic news that the Anglican Communion had just voted in their synod to begin to bless same-sex marriages. Far from saying the same thing that God says in His Word about sin... They departed from that. They're making God a liar. They're saying what they want about sin. And so Jesus tells these people, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. See, these professed believers in Jesus, this group of Jewish people who had heard him speak and then professed belief in him, didn't believe that they are enslaved. They didn't understand their own spiritual status. So Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Listen, slave... Uh, Sin enslaves you, it deceives you, and then it destroys you. That's what sin does. And before we were in Christ, we were enslaved to that pattern. It deceived us, it destroyed us, and then it killed us. But we've been set free from that. So John can now write back to 1 John chapter 2. Now he can write with confidence. I'm writing these things so you may not sin. He's speaking to the believing community and saying, you are now people who no longer need to sin. You are people who have been set free from the bondage of the will to sin. And I'm writing to remind you that you may not sin. And then he immediately, graciously concedes That even given this wonderful deliverance that we've gotten from the slavery to sin that we will sin. That we're not yet fully realized of our redemption. And while we do not have to sin and it is never God's will to sin and that we've been set free from the slavery to sin he adds if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous now isn't it interesting here that he doesn't say anything about confessing he doesn't say and if anyone sins run down to the altar on sunday night and confess your sins and if anyone sins make sure you write it down and come into the liturgy on sunday and confess your sins publicly no he said if anyone sins what is his prescription His prescription is that we are to realize that we have an advocate. In the Greek, that's parakletos, meaning one who's called alongside to help, an intercessor. So, when we sin, if we sin, what are we to do? We are to immediately remind ourselves. We're not to go inward. We're not to begin to beat up on ourselves. We're not to run to some kind of sacramental confession or some kind of ritual or rite of cleansing. We are to remind ourselves that we have an advocate, a paracletos, one who intercedes on our behalf with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, it's his righteousness, not ours, by which we're saved anyway and if we sin we need to be reminded that we uh, all the more that we need his intercession and we need his righteousness it's a good reminder if we sin to remind ourselves of what it was once like to live in bondage to sin and instead renew our minds once again refresh our minds on the fact that we have this glorious advocate this glorious intercessor one and only intercessor. There's one God and one intercessor, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he is the righteous one. So it's his righteousness. No matter how far you, how long you've been in Christ, you've been in Christ for 10 minutes or 10 years or 50 years, you never cease to be in absolute need of his righteousness. Well, we may work out the imputed righteousness and start living in actual righteousness. It's always Christ's righteousness. It's always, even as we're learning to work that righteousness out into our daily conduct, it still has its grounding in the righteousness of Christ. The life of Christ being worked out in us is still Christ's life. It's still Christ's righteousness Any ministry that we have is Christ's ministry. I have no ministry. You have no ministry. Whatever ministry we have is the ministry of Christ in us and through us. It's always about Jesus all the time. And then in verse 2 And he himself, he himself is a satisfaction for our sins. We don't need indulgences. We don't need sacramental satisfaction. We don't need some kind of ritualistic way to satisfy God. Jesus himself is the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What a glorious, profound statement that is. The scope and the breadth and the depth and the nature of our atonement will always and always should take our breath away. It always should result in our breaking out in doxology. You know that you're studying the scripture properly when it results in doxology. Glory to God, praise to God, gratitude towards God. A whole world of sins has been paid for by Christ including yours and so what we've learned about how God thinks about sin today is this since we are to say the same thing that he says we've learned that his basic elementary understanding of how God thinks and speaks about sin is that we no longer have to sin God says we are have been freed from what we once were, that was slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. Let me say that again. God says about sin that we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. And that it is never his will. He never concedes. He never condones us sinning. He has made provision for us so that we need never sin. And yet, if anyone sins, we are not to turn back in on ourselves either. We're not to go back into some kind of morbid introspection. Neither are we to deny the sin. If we sin, we're not to do as the Gnostics do, and simply deny that it's it's even an issue. Simply deny the reality of sin altogether. I know liberal Christianity that denies the nature of sin at all, denies the fallenness of man. What is that except it's latent Gnosticism? You see, these heresies never fully go away, beloved. The Apostles and their writings have given us everything we need to discern and expose and get rid of and and avoid these heresies. Thanks be to God, but that doesn't mean these heresies just went away in the first century. They're still with us today. So wherever you have someone who minimizes or diminishes or dismisses sin altogether, or, dimin- or min- excuse me, diminishes, or, or justifies the the sinfulness of fallen man, you have latent Gnosticism. So what we, we don't want to be a part of that community. Come out from amongst them if you are. Remove those people who would teach that from your community. Avoid those who teach it and don't be a part of that community. Be in fellowship instead with the apostolic community. In which you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So God says that you are being continually cleansed from sin as a result of your fellowship with him in the light. God says that for you to confess your sins means much more than just an event, a particular confession of particular known sins. It is to come into agreement with him, a settled predisposition about the nature and certainty of sin, 24-7 in agreement and then rejoice in the fact that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All sin. All unrighteousness. What I'm saying to you today, my dear brothers and sisters, is that you are in much better position than you had ever imagined before God as a result of what he's accomplished on your behalf in Christ. And now let's live it out. Let's now rejoice in it, but let's work it out in our lives. Let's live as people who are continually cleansed from sin. Let's live as people who agree with our Heavenly Father about the nature and certainty of sin. As people who are being consistently, continually cleansed from all sin, and are being continually cleansed from all unrighteousness, and instead Walk in the righteousness of Christ. Allow the life of Christ himself to work out in your life so that everything that Christ died and shed his blood to consecrate the new covenant will be active and at work in your life as you are being progressively, ever increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in thought, word, deed, character, in conduct. Well, we'll pause there. Next time, we'll take another look at what God has to say about sin so that we can ensure ourselves, ensure that we are, in fact, and assure ourselves, I should say, that we are indeed saying the same thing that God says. And then in a future lesson, we're going to take this word confession, hamalageo. To say the same thing as God, and we're going to apply it to our confession of Jesus Christ. We're going to apply it to our confession as Christians of who Jesus is, based upon what God says about his son. Not what the uh, movie producers say about him. Not what the artists say about him. Not what the cults say about him. Not what popular TV campaign ads say about him. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. The only opinion that matters for you and I is God's opinion. So in a future lesson, we will look to, again, as to what God says about his Son so that we can be certain that we are saying the same thing and thus confessing Jesus properly. May the grace of God be with you. May he keep you in his mercy always. Amen.